Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is July the 17th, 2017. This is episode 2044 of the Survival Podcast, and it's a Monday. That means it's a listener feedback show. This is where you send me your emails with your comments, your questions, links to news stories, uh, things going on in your life, things that you're doing to help out the community, whatever it is. Uh, for inclusion in a show like this, I do include about 6 to 12, depending on the week and what's going on, items in each show. That means there's no way I can do them all. But I do read all of your emails if you send them with the proper subject line, TSPC in the subject line, and then whatever, like comment for Jack, article for Jack, whatever. And remember, I share a lot of this stuff on social media, or I use it, uh, maybe not as a standalone subject, but as supporting material. So keep the stuff coming in, guys. It's really important. Without you guys, I couldn't do this show, not just because no one would listen, because you are my research staff and the one that keeps the ones that keep all the great content coming in. So I'm talking about what you want to hear. And if you think about it, three days a week we do a show that is completely, totally driven by the listeners. Three out of five days. The listener feedback show on Mondays, the listener call show on Thursdays, and the expert counsel show on Fridays are all 100% listener-driven. That's, that's our commitment to try to provide you guys the content that you're looking for. And don't think I don't take consideration from you guys on who I take as guests on the show and uh, on the standalone subjects that we talk about as well. Uh, so what do we got today? I have a listener's follow-up on homesteading abroad, especially in South America, backing up what I said and making taking it way further than I did. I think it's important for people to hear that maybe have some romanticization about I'm going to sail off to Brazil and set up my own little homestead in the mountains or something like that. Uh, a listener has actually created a really great resource on developing blackout kits. I'll talk a little bit about blackout kits as well when I give you that resource. Um, question on making wine post shit hit the fan without sugar. Actually, a pretty easy one. Uh, deciding when to retire, and should we re redefine the word retire? I'm going to talk a little bit on that one today. That might be our, our main focus today out of all the uh, subjects. Another listener makes a jump from an employee to entrepreneur. We'll talk a little bit about doing that. A better way to make a bell siphon. It's a really cool little hack that I like, and I'll also tell you about a product the guy has that takes it to another level. Uh, and Visa has declared open warfare on cash. They're not even hiding it. Just something to think about. And yes, it plays into the world of cryptocurrency long term for sure. All that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Hey, if, if you're like me, you know what a gun without ammo is. We call that an overpriced club. That's why I go to BulkAmmo.com and keep a good stockpile of ammo for all my guns at all times. And it isn't just great price and availability that keeps me going back for more. Nope, it's lightning-fast shipping and exceptional service. Give BulkAmmo.com a shot, and I promise they won't let you down. Hey guys, if you're like me, you're always concerned about the reckless economic policies of our nation. One way to ensure your wealth is to keep about 5-10% to 10 of it in precious metals, like silver and gold. And my first choice when I'm buying either is Jam Bullion, because I get personalized service, free shipping, and better pricing than the big silver houses all in one place. Check out jambullion.com to learn more. Okay, next up, let's take a look at the year that was. I had no um, year that was uh, segment for you guys on Friday because I did two shows on Thursday last week because I was uh, away on Friday playing out around with the uh, new boat. Uh, so I doubled up my workload on Thursday and got ahead of Southpaw Ben <clears throat> and David Verne. 
Um, so I'm going to read week, year 26. Uh, there's no real correlation between the episodes and the year that was anymore. So it makes sense. We'll just do them as they're available. So here's what I have for you for the year 26 uh, from Southpaw Ben. Pontius Pilate is declared prefect of Judea. This year, Pontius Pilate of biblical fame and infamy was declared the fifth prefect of Judea. The main archaeological evidence of Pilate is a limestone block called the Pilate Stone, which is a damaged limestone block containing a fragment of an inscription believed to read, To the divine Augusti, this Tiberium, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated this, and it ends. Parts of the names of the titles aren't completely readable, so archaeologists are assuming it reads as such. S. Tiberium, Nitis Pilatus, Ectis Uda, E, E, which... There's some missing letters in there. E and E are not um, actual <laughs> words in Latin. Um, it's exactly what is described with things such as the full title and names filled in based on written sources about this time, such as the biblical gospels and later Roman and Jewish historians. My take by South Paul Ben. Jewish historians report that Pilate nearly caused revolt due to his insensitivity to Jewish customs. This will eventually cause him to be removed from his position as prefect. One such example was that previous prefects would remove images and effigies from their standards when entering Jerusalem. Pilate simply had the soldiers bring the nominal standards in at night, causing a riot the next morning. <clears throat> He had his soldiers surround the Jews and threaten to kill them, to which the Jews essentially said, bring it, as they would rather die than see the desecration of Mosaic law. Uh, finally, Pilate removed the images throughout the historical writings of Jewish historian Josephus. Multiple such incidences occur before he would be deposed by Lucius Villatus after an especially harsh crushing of the Samaritan Rebellion. Okay, um, I guess my take on all of this is this is solid evidence for the individual we know as Pontius Pilate, and it's also solid evidence for the way Rome managed its its provinces. That, and this is very much like modern government. So you send this guy out with unbelievable power. You know, we talk about basically Pilate being the governor of Judea, and we think of a governor like the governor of Texas today. The, the power that a governor had at that time in this world was extreme. And yet, you know, don't let that fool you. The powers that be in the central government still expect certain things. And one of the things they expected, and this is much how Rome managed its provinces, As long as the people are peaceful in general and shut up and pay their taxes, and we don't have any trouble, we're good. And if that means letting them have things a certain way or what have you, as long as it doesn't interfere with Romans' actual business, we don't care. In other words, let them march all they want as long as they pay their taxes at the end of the day, which is exactly the mentality of the government in this country. They don't care that you riot or protest or whatever. They really don't even care that you riot. They'll just give some of your money to their insurance buddies to cover it, right? But they want basically order. Because as long as they have order, they get their check at the end of the day and they remain in power. And Pilate apparently wasn't sensitive enough to this, my take. Tiberius leaves Rome from David Verne. Sinjanus has continued to feed Tiberius' paranoia. 
by playing up the threat posed by Agrippa and other officials. He has shown Tiberius evidence showing that everyone was out to get him. Tiberius becomes so afraid that he leaves the city for his villa on Capri. He continues to give excuses about being too busy or issues with travel, but promises the Senate that he will return as soon as possible. Sinjanus acts as Tiberius' regent, relaying orders from Tiberius to Rome, but only the ones he approves. Tiberius' fear of returning to Rome is so significant, he will never return to Rome during his reign. Sinjanus' power has grown significantly, but he is forced to sit on his hands while waiting for Libya to die. Sounds more like the soap opera of Rome to me. My take by David Verne. Tiberius wasn't well-liked in Rome, especially after the death of Germanicus, but it wasn't to the point where he would have been assassinated. He was a couple. He was a capable administrator and didn't drag the empire into debt, but he was too paranoid for his own good. His own natural worry about someone trying to replace him uh, blinded him to the one man who was trying to replace him. He trusted Sinjanus so, so completely that he referred to him as socius laborum, or partner of my toils. I, I think there, this is something I've seen in businesses. You have a person running a business or a department or what have you that has a second-in-command, a lieutenant, etc., that wants their job, and the guy that has the job doesn't really have the courage to walk away from it but doesn't really want it. And as long as that second-in-command keeps the ball in the air, they'll let them do whatever they want. They'll let them do whatever they want. I've seen it. Don't think that this only applies to government officials. I've seen businesses. I've consulted with businesses Well, I've eventually had to pull people aside and very carefully point out that's what's going on. You really don't want to be here anymore. You really don't want to do this. So you're letting this person do your job for you, but the problem is they're really not qualified. But they have the ambition that you don't. That still happens today, not just in government, my friends. And folks, I'd like to remind you, if you enjoy this show and you want to support us and make sure that we're able to continue to always bring this show to you uh, five days a week, Monday through Friday, and cover these great topics, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. To do that, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members to learn more. You'll get discounts to a lot of really great companies. You'll be helping to support our show with a product that will pay for itself. Many of our members tell us that their membership pays for itself three or four times over every year. And if you're a military law enforcement Peace Corps or a first responder, you do qualify for a discount. Just email me at jack at the com with TSPC service discount in the subject line. Tell me about your service in one or two sentences, and I will get back to you with a discount code. Everybody else, just go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on members to learn more and sign up. All right, with that, let's get into today's uh, feedback. I want to do a little bit of follow-up from my piece on Thursday about network neutrality, which I don't want to rehash here, um, but I got a lot of requests by email. Can you break out that segment? Because this was something that people were going absolutely ape shit about on Facebook. And I have broken that out. I did a blog post with it today. And I would point out that if you share it, I, I, I'm not an egotistical person. I'm really not. And I don't really like to say, well, here's all the things that I've done. I, I, I generally don't do that. And, and hence, a lot of you guys that have listened to this show for years know I have a lot of experience in, in, in the you know business and sales level and marketing level uh, experience and, and company ownership, partnership, and, and fairly large concerns, etc. But you don't know the specific details other than I did a lot of stuff in telecommunications and business consulting. Those are kind of my two worlds. And in this blog post I did with this segment, I actually outlined my experience in the telco industry. And the reason I think that's important 
is when I posted that video this weekend, I already got people saying, you're the one that doesn't know anything about network management um, from people that probably don't know land from a WAN. And I think it is important that if you're going to refute something that everybody knows, that you kind of point out the reason that you know it and, and the place that you're coming from. And I say in that post, this alone does not mean that I'm right. It does mean, though, that I'm far more informed than most of the celebrity mouthpieces talking about it, like John Oliver, for instance. These people have such strong opinions about something that's so technical, yet they have no knowledge of it, and yet the people that listen to them just believe everything they, they say. And, you know, I'm not saying that there's no problems with the way that companies like, let's say, Comcast or Charter, Spectrum, etc., do business. What I am saying is these people that want to hamstring the entire industry with certain restrictions and make it sound good by giving it a pretty name like net neutrality generally don't know what that means and what the consequences of those actions are. But I want it, I want it, I want it. And this is what I hear from a generation of spoiled brats about this issue. That when I look around at what's going around with net neutrality, but I want it, I paid for it, it's my internet, and I deserve it, and I should be able to stream all the Netflix I want, etc. And, and the reality is, it just doesn't work that way. It's not an unlimited system. It's not going to be an unlimited system, and your quality of service is directly dependent on the class of service that you buy, and in essence, how much you pay for it. And if you'd like... If you didn't listen to Thursday's show and you'd like to just understand net neutrality, that post is there for you. And if you have friends that are telling you how important this issue is and how Trump's going to destroy the Internet, even though, again, we had the Internet for over 20 years without any kind of net neutrality legislation at all, uh, share this with them and, and do gently point out, hey, you might want to read the guy's credentials. Because in this world, I really do know what I'm talking about. There's places where we talk about things, and I give my opinions, and I'm clear that, well, this is my opinion, and this is what I think, and this is why I think that, and you know, maybe we should get an expert in to talk about that. But when it comes to how freaking uh, large-scale networks work and what their limitations are from a technology standpoint, I flat-out know my shit. Now, there are, I, I'll be also honest. I left that industry completely and totally... In 2011, 2012, when I walked away to do this show full-time. It's now 2017. There is new equipment, there is better technology, and it's getting better all the time. The inherent limitation, though, still exists. Please, if you haven't heard that segment and you hear this net neutrality talk, go listen to it, and it'll explain to you why it isn't what you're being told that it is. And my final thought on that would be, in general... Most people believe that most things that the government say is bullshit. So why believe them here? It's kind of interesting to me. People cherry-pick a few areas where, oh, we can trust the government with this, even though they don't trust them in most other things. This just sounds nice. It sounds like what you should have. Well, you know, every, you know a lot of people think everybody should have a freaking unicorn, too, and we won't get into that, but you know how that works out. All right, so next up I have a guy named Renato... And Renato is emailing from Brazil, and here's what he says. He says, hi, Jack. And I thought this was really important to read this letter to you guys, because I know a lot of people talk about the idea of, you know, geographic arbitrage and things like that, moving somewhere else, still earning dollars, et cetera, uh, cutting your tax footprint, having more freedom, cheap land, et cetera. Here it is. from, And the reason I gave my disclaimer about the net neutrality thing is, 
this is a guy that at least for Brazil knows what he's talking about because he lives there. So he knows more than the person like at escapeartist.com who wants to tell you that you can go live somewhere else for, for next to nothing, but they write a web blog and make some money off of some advertisements. Just saying, okay? It says, hi, Jack. I'm writing to give feedback to the caller from show 2042 that is thinking about moving to South America. Some people in the United States of America do not know how lucky they are. There is no better place to be born than the USA. The caller did not say where in South America he plans to go, but I would say that he should never leave the greatest place in the world. The only country in the world where you have a chance to be free is the USA because it is the only place founded in Enlightenment values and its firm constitution to protect these values. You said it well, Jack. Everywhere else is socialist. But I wanted to make sure I gave my opinion, too. I have it pretty good here in Brazil. I have a video production company that's 10e20.com.br. I live in a big, I, I live in a dream bug out location, but I would trade places for the collar with places for the collar in a heartbeat, and I would not think twice. I live in one of the best places to live in South America. Perfect climate, right on top of the Tropic of Capricorn at altitudes of 800 to 900 meters. That's about 2,800, 2,900 feet to give you. Uh, metric to English conversion, uh, and 50 miles from the best part of the South Atlantic Sea, close to Sao Paulo, where you can get everything you can get in the USA. The only things you can't get here are freedom and security. We have murder rates that are unbelievably high, and because there is no Second Amendment, we can't carry a gun. Even inside our house, it is very hard to have a weapon legally. .380 is the biggest caliber we can have. The middle class lives mostly inside gated communities because of the violence and crime. Normal affluent people like doctors and lawyers drive in bulletproof cars. Farmers are robbed so often they can't get insurance. Small farms are going out of business. It's common to have all your cattle stolen in the middle of the night by heavily armed gangs with AK-47s, and we can't even get a .38 legally. The gangs come with trucks and take all you have. Tractors are also frequently stolen. Uh, the big industrial farmers have teams of ex-police officers that patrol the farms with bulletproof SUVs. Land is very expensive and there's almost no financing. Land is very productive, but small farmers have a hard time. The monocultural farms have money and financing from abroad, so they crush the small farmers. And because land is so productive and it produces commodities like soy, corn, sugar, cane, wheat, uh, wheat that have international markets, the price of land is just as high as in the best parts of the America. Uh, good farmland is expensive and the rest of the land is so regulated you can't do anything with it. Health is free, I think it means health care is free for everyone, but I spend 20% of my income on health insurance. And even the private insurance is so regulated that it is worse than Obamacare. I have no choice in what I have, what to have covered or what not to have covered in my plan. Dude, I will let you know that that sounds like Obamacare to me. Uh, I am affluent, so I get very good health care, but, but at a crazy price. Affluent people here in Brazil have a standard of living of low to middle class people in the USA because everything is so expensive. Taxes are high, and the government sucks as a whole. Um, in the suburbs, many people live inside gated communities that are behind walls. It has a picture of very high concrete-style walls with uh, not uh, bar, but uh, razor wire coils around the top of them. He says in every city, in the city it's every man for himself, and he has a you know, wall around the individual house with, with fencing above it. Um, the small farmers are lucky when they only take cattle and don't kill your family, and he has a pickup truck uh, full of dead cattle, and, and it says, if I could move to the U.S., I would. 
I have lived in the U.S. for two years, and every other year I go to visit as a tourist. But it is almost impossible to immigrate legally to America. The Democrats and the neocons have made it such a way that only the ones who are willing to break the laws can immigrate to the United States. Maybe he should read Rediscovering. Maybe he should read Rediscovering Americanism. Uh, best regards, Renato, uh, MSB member from Brazil. Renato, thank you for that. And, and I, I think another thing that I want to point out here is I am hard on this country at times and what we're doing because I love what we're supposed to be so much, not because I think everything sucks here. And I do, and I've said it many times, I do still think the place in the world where you have the greatest opportunity of success and freedom is the United States of America, which is why I get so angry that it seems like so many people in this country want us to be more like fill in the frickin' blank. I don't care. Because any country they point to is not a more successful country than this one in any real measurable way. Now, you might say, well, they have higher graduation rates or something like that, or children have uh, score higher on their test scores. Well, I, I don't want to get into the specifics about that, but that's highly misleading. But that really isn't a measure of the success of the country, in my opinion. Because, I'll, I'll, to be fair to teachers, as much as I bust on the government school system, if you look at ch children's grades across this country... And you simply ask the question, do parents spend at least two hours a week discussing schoolwork and education with their children, and you divide those into two groups? And that is the only criteria you look at. Our test scores, our grades, et cetera, stand with anybody if we only include that group. And we've gotten to a point in this country where our, our parents do nothing in, in a large part. Some of you are mad at me for that. Well, then I bet your kids are in the first group I mentioned, so don't be so mad. The other thing is, well, you know, it, what is the sample group? So a lot of these advanced countries, they say everybody goes to college for free. No, 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 no. See, at a certain point, you're judged. You're judged. You either are good enough to go to university or you're not. And then you can either go to a trade school or nothing, right? And a lot of times the test scores that you're seeing at the high school level are for the kids that are qualified to go to university, and we just leave everybody else out of what we report nationally. That's, that's another example of how they you know, kind of finagle things. But, but again, it does, that's not even really my point. My point is, what can a person do for themselves is the best way to measure, in my opinion, the freedom and liberty of a country. So even though I can point to a hundred things that I'm unhappy about easily in this country... I'm, you know, I live in Texas because it's one of, one of the freer states for the things that are important to me. Is it the freest state for things that are important to me? Probably not. But it's good enough, and it fits with my wife. Now, if it was, if we were in New York, I'd be telling my wife, "You got to, you got to figure something out because we're not staying here. If we're in California; it'd be the same thing. Like there, there'd be a come to Jesus meeting over that. And that alone says that we're blessed to be in America, that we have that." differentiator, but that's also there are people that would give all they have and start again with zero to be in our country. That's all they would ask for. They, they would give up everything they have except their skills and knowledge. Be plopped out here on the street with nothing in their hands and not ask for anything from anybody to have the opportunity that you were born with. And that's why many in our younger generation don't appreciate what they have. And that's why they keep asking for more and more and more and more. And what they're really saying they want, they want all the freedoms of America, 
but they want all the free shit of the rest of the world. But they don't understand that it's never free shit. And that's why I don't care what it is you're doing, back to what we originally started this whole China of thought on, if it's homesteading and you can't find land for what you can afford in, a, in, in your area, I think you're better off finding another area within our country to do what you want to do than to go to some other country where you really don't understand the culture and the language and the restrictions and the barriers. And I think Renato's um, well-written letter um, really spells it out. I also think it points out one of the big stupidity things that we have here in this country. Um, many of you know Fernando Aguirre, also known as Fairfell. Um, he's author... Um, he's been writing and blogging for a very long time, and he came up in Argentina, right? And lived through the financial collapse of Argentina, and eventually left Argentina and went to Northern Ireland. And the reason he went to Northern Ireland is because he ended up realizing with his father's ancestry, he could get a EU passport for anywhere in the European Union. And... So out of the European Union, this is the place that he saw that fit the best for his needs and requirements. But he would have come here. And when he was trying to immigrate here, they were saying, well, who's going to employ you? Who are you going to work for? And he kept saying, I don't need to be employed. I don't need a job. I am a business owner. I have self-sustaining income. Here it is. Here's my records of income. For They didn't care. They would do nothing for him. The only way you can come here like that It's like my friend Neil Franklin did. You have to be employing people when you get here. And then it's still begging to stay once a year. I used to help uh, with Neil getting all his shit together once a year to basically go back to our government and say, and, and to his government and say, both, I need to stay over here to continue to oversee my businesses. And yeah, I, I think this is the best place to be. Which makes fighting the direction we're heading more, not less important and which makes advocating for complete and total freedom and liberty, so long as you're not harming someone else or someone else's property, even more important. Just my thoughts. Uh, next up, this one comes from Kenneth. Kenneth says, uh, Jack, the blackout kit. Article for Jack is the subject line. It's a PDF that goes over how he put his blackout kit together. Um, says right on the front of it, it says dedication. This booklet is dedicated to Jack Spiracle of the Survival Podcast, as it was he who gave my box of flashlights and stuff a name. Thanks, Jack. Okay, and I don't know. I might be the person that, that, that came up with the term blackout kit. Um, I know that I just kind of thought we needed a name for that when I was doing early shows on the different things that you should set up, and uh, just seemed like blackout kit seemed like the way to go. So. I have a link in the show notes today where you can get this PDF. It's about 11 pages, well put together. And he definitely sticks to my philosophy in it, basically lighting, um, some comms gear, and, and some other stuff, and batteries, etc. So let's talk about what a blackout kit is for a minute, because it's something, you know, we should do some back-to-basics, if not whole show segments from time to time, because this is the survival podcast, right? This is about preparedness. So my reasoning for coming up with a blackout kit, and I probably first talked about this two months into the show, so over nine years ago now, was that one of the most common things that we deal with as an emergency is a blackout. I mean, that's something that 
I think no matter who you are, no matter where you live, no matter how sheltered a life you are, there's been at some point in your life where you're sitting around in your happy-go-lucky way in your house or at work or somewhere else, and all of a sudden it goes, and the ceiling fans go, whop, whop, whop. The TV goes, off, right? The computer goes, hopefully you have a UPS so you don't lose all your work, right? Fish tank goes from bubble, bubble, bubble to plop. We've all been there. And I know what everybody's first thought is when it happens. Damn it. Right? That's that's the best case scenario is damn it. Right? Uh, unless maybe you're at work and that, you think that means you get to go home early and you really don't like your job. I guess other than that, it's damn it. There's some other choice words, some that begin with F when it happens. And let's say you're in the shower with soap in your eyes. And as soon as the power goes off, you hear screaming and wailing and gnashing of teeth of your taught, you know, your your your, your five year old screaming because they're scared in the dark. Right? These are the types of situations we end up in. This is very common, and that power can go out for five minutes, and it can go out for five hours, and it can go out for five days. The longest blackout period that I personally went through was eleven days, and we skated right through it because of generators and all types of high higher level preparedness. In that instance, it was one of those damn it ones. It was also one of those, damn it, we really need to get this together because power went out due to an ice storm during freezing temperatures when we're on a well. All right, so you can see all kinds of problems going there. And again, we were able to get through everything because we were well prepared. But it did happen when the, when the light from the sun was still visible. So basically, you can get all your stuff together. But what a blackout kit is really for is when you're in the shower with soap in your eyes and your kid is screaming in the hallway and you're trying to get your shit together and the son has gone to bed for the night, which seems to be when most of them happen. Just I'm just saying. And that means you need to be able to go to one place and get basically the basic things you need together to start dealing with the immediate consequence and implement your larger scale system. So... In your blackout kit would not be your Honda EU 2000 generator. It would not be your solar panels or anything else like that. Your blackout kit is basically, again, lighting, basic communications equipment, um, and really that's, and, and something to power them, so backup batteries. And a little bit more than that. But the point being that if we have all of that stuff in one box, in one spot in the house, When the power goes out, we go there. If we're smart, we get some power failure lights, and we plug them in throughout the house. And what these are are little lights that work like a nightlight, and I have some that I've reviewed in T-SPAS. I'll see if I can look them up and put them in the show notes for you. And basically, what happens is when the power goes out, the little nightlight comes on. And the good ones, you can lift that little nightlight up and use it like a flashlight. And we should have one in the room or next to the shelf or right where our blackout kit is. So when we go in there, there it is. And when you open up your blackout kit, these are the two things that I think should be on the top. And this guy's uh, article here, this little PDF book, says exactly the same thing. One's a headlamp and one's a large flashlight with batteries in, ready to go. Because I can open up that box, put that flashlight thingy on my head, turn that thing on, I can begin to operate hands-free. I can get some other little cheap flashlights. Could throw a bunch of cheap flashlights in there. He has that too, by the way. This is all straight out of the Spiritual Playbook. You start handing all the kids that are crying a flashlight. They got something to do, right? And then we say, now we're going to start getting things together. When it was when it was winter time, and this would happen, 
Um, with, with my family, okay, it's winter, it's cold out. First thing we want to do is we want to get a fire going in the fireplace. No, it won't heat the whole house, but it does help. And the quicker we do it, the better off we are. So my son had the job. Go get a fire log, go get kindling, whatever we have that's available, get a fire going. That gives him something to do. I don't have to listen to him bitch about the fact that the power's out and he can't play his video games because he's busy doing that. And we start making a decision. Does this look long-term? Does it make sense to pull the generator out? If it does, then I went ahead and got that started. But then I go get a big box full of extension cords and adapters and put that and say, start running this here, there, and there, and there, and here. I'll get the generator running, crack a window, cord goes out the window, plug in the generator, boom, 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 blah, house is back online, right? But without that blackout kit, everything's harder. So it's one of those things that no matter how prepared you are or aren't, you're going to want to use the resources you do have to deal with the situation you're in, and the first thing you need is to be able to see and to be able to set up lighting throughout the house so that you can see throughout the house so that the kids are not scared, so that you can take care of things, and so you can get to whatever resources you have. Blackout kit. If you do not have one, I hate to put it this way, but you're wrong. You need to put one together. And uh, Kenneth has put together a great resource to tell you how to do just that. Again, uh, it is linked to as a PDF in today's show notes. Um, next one comes from Marcus. Marcus says, What is a good recipe for making wine post shit hit the fan? if it lasts a long time. All the wine recipes I find always require sugar. In a post-shit-hit-the-fan scenario, sugar will be hard to come by. I am in the process of growing my own food forest, which will consist of apples, mustang grapes, blueberries, mulberries, oranges, uh, with wild dewberries and wild blackberries. Marcus. So, Marcus, if you're growing oranges, you have to be in the tropics, and that opens up a whole shitload of other things that you might want to think about in the way of tropical fruits. So, for instance, one of the things that you mentioned here, Mustang grapes, and I, I assume you mean muscadines. Um, I, that's what I think that's a name for muscadine grapes. They're actually extremely high in sugar, and you really don't need to add sugar to muscadine wine. I personally am of the opinion that you should not, because you will push the sugars to a level where there will be more residual sugars, and your final wine will be sweet, and I think if you want sweet, you should drink grape juice. And if you want alcohol and sweet, then you should drink grape juice with vodka in it. Because wine is not supposed to be sweet. I guess you could make a case for a dessert wine here and there, but a general wine that you would sit back, sip on the porch, and enjoy, if it's sweet, it's nasty in my personal opinion. And the reason most muscadine wines are sweet isn't because they're muscadine wines, but because the, when, they were, when they were invented, they used a bunch of sugar that boosted the total sugar to a point where the wine yeast can't totally ferment things out. So you end up with a very highly attenuated yet sweet wine. And that's why a lot of times if you drink a, you know, a bottle of muscadine wine, you end up sleeping under the tree that you drank it under. Okay? Um, whereas a fruit like an apple... Fruit like an apple, actually, unless it's a specifically bred apple for a very high sugar content, and there's not a lot of those that are you know around anymore, is going to have a sugar content that apple juice straight in of itself will yield a cider of about 4 to 4.5% alcohol. This is not a wine. A wine will generally be in the neighborhood of 9 to 14%, some a little higher. But wines are higher alcohol than ciders and ales. But a 4.5% beer is a typical American beer. So ciders in the past, 
were never made with sugar. Ciders of the past were made with all of the apples that weren't fit to, to use as dessert or storage apples. Mostly they were just random apples from different pits that grew all over the place. They were collected up, and in a big party, everybody smashed them and made cider out of them just by fermenting the apples. In fact, in the past, and when I say the past, I'm talking 150 years ago, most apple cider that was made was made without even the inoculation of any type of specifically prepared yeast. If you just mash apples up and squeeze them, they will ferment from yeast that naturally occur on them. So probably the best fruit that you can have for making, for making uh, an alcoholic beverage, let's not call it a wine, uh, long-term in a sustainable manner is good juice variety of apples. So, you know, you're on, on target with that. I'm just wondering how good your apple production is going to be where you can actually grow oranges, though there are some apples that do very well in hot climates. Uh, so, you know, maybe you're growing those and what have you. Blueberries, mulberries, blackberries. These are all things that are good to add to anything with a higher sugar content in making a wine or a mead. So honey is another option there, and we'll talk about it in a second. Um, but none of them tend to have enough sugar to make something approaching what you're going to be happy with. Blackberry can make some really fantastic wines and meads and ales. But generally speaking, if you ferment blackberry by itself, you get something that tastes a lot like cough syrup. Same thing for cherries. I'm not putting them down. I'm just saying they kind of need something to come to the party with them, in my experience as a venter, brewer, and mead maker for many, many years. Um, oranges? Ugh. Oranges are not something to ferment standalone. They're just not. If you think about what a lemon is, it is a sour citrus, right? Okay. When you take orange juice, if you were to ferment straight orange juice, you take the sugar that's in oranges and you convert it to alcohol and CO2 and you strip out the sugar and you leave everything that is citrus except sugar, what do you get? You get something very akin to lemons. So orange is a great adjunct to other things. So, But let's... Let's talk about the greater fear here, though. I'm going to want to make alcohol, and I ain't going to be able to make it because the shit's going to hit the fan and stay that way for a long time. I think you should dial back your concern on that a little bit. I think the day that you can't get a bag of Dixie Crystals is pretty far out. I think there's a lot of things in our world that we really have to worry about long before that, and dry sugar stores pretty well, by the way, especially if your intent is to use it for fermentation. Because it don't matter if it turns into, like, if you keep sugar in a bag and stick it on a shelf and leave it there long enough, there'll get to be enough moisture in it, it'll turn into a solid brick. But it's not going to go bad. It's not going to go off. Unless some creature or critter gets in there and starts eating it, it's, it's, it's pretty much shelf-stable indefinitely for making meads and wines and ciders and things like that. You'll melt it down. It's going to, go, it's going to get boiled, etc. Right? Now, the true sustainable long-term sugar is honey. You know, If you have 25 beehives and you're a good beekeeper and you can take care of your bees and you have all the equipment necessary to take care of your bees and continue to propagate and take care of your bees, you have the most sustainable sugar production possible. However, let me add to that. Most beekeepers feed their bees sugar water. 
And unless you're lucky and, and you live in a place with an extremely high rate of flow, keeping bees and taking any kind of consistent honey take from them without feeding them back something is difficult. It's, it's akin to raising you know, uh, chickens and not feeding them anything. There's ways to do it, but you know they'll never be as productive. And some of you are thinking of like Jeff Lawton's chicken tractor on steroids, and they don't feed the chickens any grain. That's true, but they're feeding the chickens a lot of vegetable waste product and things like that that they're using to make the compost, etc. So it's 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 not not feeding them, right? And even if they get a lot from the land. So if you're a beekeeper, you're probably storing sugar to make sugar syrup to feed your bees. And that's just the modern world that we live in. However, like I said, 1700s, 1800s, these people didn't use what we think of as sugar to make alcohol because sugar was too rare and too expensive. Now you got to go back to a world where you didn't just grow sugar down in Florida and put it on a semi-truck and take it to Philadelphia. You're growing sugar in the islands and you had to put it on a boat and ship it there. And refinement wasn't quite what it is today. Mass production wasn't quite. So, so people made beer and wine and, and, and all of these things without added sugar. And it's all doable. Just because the recipe says you have to add it. Most wine recipes can be made just as they're printed without adding sugar. You're just going to end up with a lower alcohol by volume. And that's not necessarily bad. You know, if we make a typical, uh, you know, a simple apple cider, it's basically dump and pour. So we dump apple juice out of a, a bottle into a bigger bottle. We add some sugar, you know, to the tune of about per five gallons, about two pounds of sugar. Uh, that's going to push us up to an alcohol count content of about 7%. Whereas if we just ferment straight apple juice, again, we're going to end up with about four, three to four, five. That's plenty enough alcohol. And then if you want truly sustainable, high-volume alcohol production, then you learn distilling. Because now we can turn that low-end wine into a brandy. Or we can turn raw grain into whiskey. We can turn coin, I'm sorry, coin corn into liquor. So, I mean, if I was really afraid that the, uh, the shit was going to hit the fan long-term and alcohol was going to become an extremely valuable commodity... I would expand what I'm doing beyond beers and meads and wines into distillation. Right? There's ways to do that legally, I'm just saying, but um, I would at least acquire the knowledge so that it could be used, let's say, in this future that you fear. However, again, I am not one of these people that tells you that I think collapse is imminent. I think there'll be multiple collapses that will occur in most people's adult lifetimes that are alive. If you're alive right now and you're not ready for the box in another 10 years, I think you'll experience multiple collapses of, of different segments of our society as we transition through different things and hardships and whatever. But I don't think you're going to get to a point where you're going to be going five years without being able to buy a bag of Dixie Crystals. And I don't think that's what we should be preparing for. And beyond that, I don't think that's where our mental state should be. We spend all our time preparing for the things that are unlikely to happen. Inevitably, we end up highly unprepared for the things that are likely to happen. And that's against the thesis of modern survivalism that I've been teaching now for nine years. Let's take another one. Okay, next one comes from Kiernan. Kiernan says, Hi, Jack. I'm trying to figure out what is the correct age to retire at and go hobby, homesteading, and fishing full time. Just wondering what is your views on retiring. I've seen so many guys work and accumulate 
and then croak in their 50s and 60s where they never got to do all the hobby stuff they hope to do. Thanks, regards, Kiernan. Um, Kiernan, I, I can't tell you what age is right for you to retire. But I think maybe an interesting thing to do would be to take a look at the concept of American retirement, what it is in the idea of most people in America. I've told this story before. I'm sure many of you haven't heard it, though, because I think it's once or twice, and it's probably a long time since, um, of somebody that I don't think is the brightest bulb in the tree, but in the end, what he was saying is truthful about the way people um, think of retirement in this country. So one day I'm, I'm diddling around on Facebook, and I guess the guy had sent me a friend request that I had approved back when I approved them without really looking at him, because I don't even know that I would have approved this guy's friendship request, because he was just kind of a, a huckster, we'll leave it at that. And uh, he says, hey, Jack, how are you doing? And I said, hey, Patrick, I'm fine. It's not that Patrick, right? It's not empty knots, Patrick. It's a different Patrick, a northeastern uh, Patrick. This guy was always into every kind of fast money-making scheme out there. So I was real leery when the next text came from him. He says, I just wanted to let you know I'm retired now. I was sure that he wanted me to sign up for Amway or something like that and so I could be retired too. But you know, I'll entertain it a little bit. I said, how, how are you retired, Patrick? He said, I'm now on disability. And I won't go into where the conversation went to from there, but suffice to say he got on disability for a couple thousand dollars a month And he viewed himself as retired. Now, I actually would view that as a big limitation on the things I want to accomplish in my life because there are so many things you can't do if you want to stay on disability. But he was willing to basically pretend to be disabled. And that's the truth about this guy. He had some problems, but it wasn't enough to really require disability payments. And there's millions of Americans on that. But the truth in this is this, what, this is what America thinks of as retirement. Retirement is the point at which you can have some sad amount of money come in that's sufficient to pay for your basic needs so that you no longer have to work. And if that happens to coincide with the point that you're too tired or don't really want to work anymore, then you stop working and you become, quote-unquote, retired. Now, I want to take you back to, I think, what in many, many instances and ways was a better time in America. And I know there's people that will say, no, it wasn't because, you know, civil rights, etc. So, Again, I think one of the big blinders that we have in America today is we can't see the good of the past because all we focus on is the bad of the past. Well, you know, 50 years, 100 years ago, this country was a much tighter nation from a standpoint of community and family and things like that. And we also were a lot more of an agrarian country. And the concept of retirement was largely unheard of, and there's still a lot of places in the world where it's largely unheard of. Because most people on some level were some sort of an entrepreneur, And most families had a lot of collusion going on with work and entrepreneurship or family or business ownership, where even if a father had, and you know, families were bigger, so even if a father had like three sons and two daughters, let's say, just pulling numbers out of my ass, and one of the daughters and one of the sons didn't work in and around the farm or the business or whatever, you know, two or three or four did. And what that allowed was the children eventually taking over the main part of the operations and the father stepping away from command and control in the daily grind, etc., and tending to smaller, less critical things, but still being there when some shit went totally wrong and you know, Junior didn't know what the hell to do about it. Dad was right there and said, oh, this happened in, in, in 47. Do this. It works. So the old man... 
And again, being from a Ukrainian family, old man is a freaking term of respect. Don't anybody be offended by that or old lady. Old man and old lady, there's, there's Ukrainian words for, for it that I can't even remember how to say them. But in my family, if you were the old man, you could be 35 and be the old man. You were the oldest male in that family, you were the old man of that family. All right? But the old man, the patriarch of the family, was still there to take care of things and never really retired. He just did less of the hard work and had more free time to himself. Which we also kind of sort of think is that's what retirement is today. So I think in some ways in America, we need to, in, in some levels, be redefining what retirement means. Not working full-time anymore. On some levels, you could say that I personally am partially retired, semi-retired. I run a business, but it's not like anything that I did before this as far as you know, stress level, etc. It fits my lifestyle. You know, I, it is it is three fifty four, and I'm still working right now. I'm not even you know, I'm not even got into production of the show yet today. So some days are long, but other days I might be done by two o'clock and go fishing. But I wouldn't call myself retired. I would even call myself semi retired at this point. But it's certainly the case that if you know, as I get older, I decide I want more time to myself. I could produce this show in a shorter format or with less effort or rely more on past material and do three new shows a week or something like that. And I'm sure it would cost me financially, but because I've made good investments, because I've put myself in a good place, etc., and because I've built loyalty in the audience over the years, there would probably still remain a lot of support, and I could still maintain a really good income. And I think that would be partially retired, because it would be less than I'm doing now, but I hadn't completely gone away. And then there's full-on retirement where there's some sort of pension. It's basically all you're using is passive income at that point. And I think we have to decide, like, do I really want that in my life? Do, do I really want to turn away from anything that we would call work? And then I would say when I look at examples of, of retired, I guess my two greatest examples are my grandparents. And my one grandfather was retired from the military And he went to work in the civilian world, and he gained a second retirement um, from, from civilian employment. And then he worked part-time as a security chief for a college university. And he did that right up until he decided to leave Florida after my grandmother passed away. And then he finally was retired. And he pretty much sat around in his apartment. He did find, luckily for him, I'm grateful, a, a lady in his life that uh, they, they you know spent those years together but basically sat around and waited to die from cancer. He didn't really do anything. My other grandfather, he worked in the coal mines. He was in the Navy during World War II. This guy was battered. He had lumps of coal in his hand and his arm. I mean I thought when I was growing up as a little kid I'd look at that I thought my grandfather was the toughest man in the world. And eventually he ended up on black lung Uh, disability payments from working in the mines. And his was legitimate. I still remember him, you know, 25 years since he'd been in a hole in the ground, coughing and then coughing into a, 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 a like a, a, not a napkin, we call it a, a bandana or whatever, and coughing up black. I mean, that's real shit, right? Um, but he basically, now he sat around and, and didn't do much of anything. He talked about going fishing all the time, but he never went. And I think in both ways, One, because he never could stop working, and when he finally did, didn't know what to do. And the other, in actually being physically impaired and not 
being willing to fight through it for the things that he still had in his life, both of those guys just quit and gave up. Maybe that's why I don't have the most positive view of retirement, right? You you emulate what, what's around you, or if you don't like it, you make damn sure you stay away from it. So I think retirement is a decision needs to be, what am I going to do? Is it really what I want to do with the free time? That answer is yes, that takes that box. And two, what is my source of income, and w will I be able to make do with it? Because if I retire too early and I run out of money, I'm going to find 20 years into it, And I still got another 20, 25, 30 years to live, let's say. No one wants me. Not only am I an old guy that's out of touch with all the new technology and everything, but I ain't worked for 20 years. So in the eyes of business and industry, whether it's true or not, I must be a lazy ass. And, and to me, it seems a lot more like if you're going to retire, you should retire. If you're going to retire young, where you still have a lot of things you can do, developing some sort of a hobby business that you can do 20, 25 hours a week. Is a great idea if you can do it without turning into me, right? Where you're still going to work 60 hours even though you're retired. <laughs> But you know, woodworking or something like that really is what you want to do. And then you set limits to how much work you're going to take or how much you're going to do because it gives you something to still be doing. And there's people like Chris Prater, who's a member of this audience and community that I think is just an amazing example. And I don't know that he's retired yet, but I see all the stuff he does in addition to work that when he retires, he's not going to be without things to do. The man keeps bees, for instance. He keeps bees, and he doesn't make honey. He makes bees. He makes new packages of bees. And basically, he has all his hives set up to optimize bee production, feeds them cheap sugar water, lets them keep all the honey they make, maybe takes a couple quarts a year. And every, every year, he goes out and splits a hive into three, not two, three, so two new nukes and the original core hive, does his own requeening, and then sells nukes one day a year. One day a year. Puts out an ad, nukes are available for this much here, cash and carry only, and in one day, every single one he has for sale goes away, and that's it. But those bees need some care and taken care of throughout the year. He builds his own boxes and things like that. But that way, way, way more than pays for itself. And I think that kind of like tinkerer, handyman level type thing makes a lot more sense in retirement than just, I'm going to sit in my rocking chair and, and do nothing. But I think you make a good point too, though. I see so many people that when I retire, I'm going to go fishing every day and I'm going to go hunting. And, and by the time they retire, they're old and they're tired and they're beaten down and they just don't. And I've, I've tried to make sure I'm not setting myself up for that either because that's what I saw out of my other two grandfathers. They really didn't live well in their retirement years. One seemed totally by choice, and one seemed largely because of physical, physical issues. So I can't tell you when to retire, but I can tell you that the conditions you're looking for are knowing what you're going to do with yourself and having enough financial longevity to be able to go the distance without ending up in financial hardship. And I think reevaluating what the word even means might be a lot helpful to a lot of people because they would see, well, if I'm working part-time, I'm not retired. Well, I think for many people, maybe that's the best answer. If you don't want a business or whatever, find a place you can work 20 hours a week, even if you only make a little bit of money. That actually fits the definition of retired of the guy that lives over on the other side of the fence for me. This guy was a Navy corpsman, did two tours of uh, uh, duty in Vietnam, 
And he today he he part time uh, teaches at colleges as a uh, literature professor. He writes books and he works part time at freaking Home Depot. But he has all the time in the world to do anything that he wants. He does whatever the hell he wants. He doesn't care. I mean, he is the stereotypical old tip. He's got a ponytail down the middle of his back. Guy's cool as shit. Seems happy all the time. And he's been living that way. You know, he's he's almost 80 now, but he's been living that way for over 20 years. And if you ask him or if he's retired, he'd say yes. And I think he makes enough money that he, I don't know if he's even drawn SSI at this point. I'm not even sure. So I think there's a lot of different ways to view that, and I think it's something that a lot of us would really benefit from starting to think about as we get older. And when I say get older, I mean your 40s. Because that's when your financial advisor says, 30 years to go, man, 70 years old, you'll be retired. Silver-haired, walking down the beach, you might be dead. I think Kiernan's right about that. Something to think about. On that note, real quick one here. Ray writes me and he says, Jack, I have listened to you since the Jetta days. Finally got tired. For those who don't know what the hell that means, I did the first two years of this show in my car, a Volkswagen Jetta at the time. Finally got tired of someone else dictating how and what I do for 40-plus hours a week for a small pittance. Having been in the HVAC industry for 27 years, last month I took my life back. I've made many long lifelong customers over the years, and they all followed me out the door. One of the biggest pushes was you and your crew every day. Thanks for all you do, Ray. Ray, awesome. So Ray is now working for himself. I'd say it's probably a balance somewhere between entrepreneur and self-employed. Because if you're a one-man show, maybe you're hiring a helper from time to time, you stop working, you stop making money. We've been talking about that a lot lately. That's not bad. That's not always bad. I mean, the beauty of that is there's a lot of headaches that you don't have. There's a lot of headaches you don't have. And I think people like that in an industry like HVAC, you know. One of the things about that is if you're on vacation and you're the only guy, um, and I need my shit fixed now because it's 187,000 degrees inside my house, or my pipes are freezing up because it's winter, then I need it now. And I don't care that you took a vacation. I don't care that I think you deserve a vacation. In fact, I thought you, this is how your customer will be in that industry. I believe that you you deserved a vacation right up until it affected me. So I think one of the things people in that type of a a world should consider is um, forming alliances with people that you can trust that if I'm away... You'll cover my emergencies, and if you're away, I'll cover your emergencies. And we will do it very ethically and above board so that the customer knows I made sure he was taken care of, and that customer's going to stay loyal to me, and when I do it for you, it's going to work back the same way the other way around. Just a little thought there maybe to uh, prime where you go with this because I doubt after all those years of that shit you want 20 guys in trucks running around. But if you do, great. But see, this type of thing, and then if you start expanding to a few other little things you can do, it can be one of those things that heads you into a semi-retirement. You know, if you can make the same money, final take-home money. Because remember, you got to make more money self-employed than you employed to the tune of about 25% to break even. But if you can make the same money in the end that you put in your pocket um, with less work, you can put yourself into that semi-retired standpoint. And I'll give you a perfect example of this. We have a girl that takes care of our pool because my deal with Dorothy was I don't want to take care of a pool and I don't really want a pool. I'm okay with one. I don't mind it. I'll float my ass around in it at times. But if it were just me, I wouldn't have a pool. I just wouldn't. I don't really get that much out of having a pool. So we need to budget that we have a pool person 
that takes care of cleaning the pool, vacuum, all that shit. So we had this girl taking care of our pool. She got in a motorcycle accident recently, and she's been unable to work. We found another guy to do it. Well, we've already told her, when you are ready, we'll go back to using you. We'll be here for you. Now, she's she works for uh, Tarrant County Corrections Department, basically in the, the jail. I don't think she's a corrections officer. I think she works like some kind of support role, but she is some some sort of officer there. And she's less than eight years from her retirement from that job. She's building up this pool business in her spare time, so she'll have a client load big enough to have a significant income from it while she's drawing her retirement check from corrections department from the county. Now, her plan is, I want to build this up till it's as much as I can stand and work my, my full-time job. And when I stop working my full-time job, I don't want it to get any bigger. See how many different ways there are to approach that question we had in the last one that this one led us back to? So many different ways. I'm going to work part-time in addition to full-time until I can stop working full-time and draw some sort of benefit from that and then keep the part-time where it always was. If you have the discipline to do it, if you're not like me, wired, hardwired with DNA, where you're like, how can I make this bigger? How can I make it better? What can I do next? Then those are great plans. And uh, I'm starting to see the wisdom of that as I get older myself. So this one comes from Ed, and Ed says, um, Hey Jack, Bigelow Farms, alternative bell siphon, author indicated that sometimes the siphon never stops. Uh, there's a continuous slow trickle. I'm not familiar with bell siphons, but thought this video was interesting. I initially emailed Ed back and said, Unfortunately, this person's website is down, and the ones they build you can't buy anymore, and here's why. So about... A few months ago, maybe, no, just it has to be almost a year ago now, I had a guy on the air named Richard Hastings. And the reason I say it, he came to the spring workshop, and he did a workshop on aquaponics. And he had with him a siphon from this same company, this Big Low Farms, that was printed from a 3D printer, and this company sells them for 25 bucks. Apparently their site was down when I got this email, but it's back up now, and I have a link to that siphon you can get. And it uses part of this technology, but when I actually got off my butt and looked up the video, I saw what they were, what they, what the, the, the this guy was talking about was actually a really simple little hack. And what this guy's doing, so let's talk real quick about what a bell siphon is. A bell siphon is basically you have a stand-up pipe and water fills a container. And when it gets to where that pipe's level is, that sets the level of the water in the container. And if we don't do anything other than put that stand-up pipe in there, we turn the water on, and as long as we don't turn it where it runs so fast it can't get through as fast as it gets in, it'll just hold that level. makes perfect sense to most people. You put a pipe in a container that water can flow into, turn water onto it, it'll hold that level. Okay. We now take a bell, which is basically a sealed larger cylinder, and put it on top of it. And water will fill up to a point where it hits that stand-up and it starts flowing through. And it will eventually build negative pressure and then it will cause the water to shoot out faster than it's coming in. Again, assuming we don't put the water in too fast. So we have some sort of throttle on the water that's coming in. And then we will drill a hole in the bottom of that bell or put a breather tube where we drill a hole in the top of the bell, attach a tube, and put a bell down into the water level. And when the water comes down to where that hole is or where that breather tube is, it will suck air in and break the siphon. And this, in general, works really good. 
But here's the deal. To make that work, you have to throttle that water to a point where it is either, where, where it is both flowing fast enough to trigger it. If you put it too slow, it'll get to the top. And it'll just start trickling over, and then you'll see the siphon start to try to build and fail, and try to build and fail, and it'll never dump. And then your, your grow bed stays constantly full of water. It's like a, what you call a constant fill level. And then your roots don't get enough oxygen, and your plants die. Okay? The other thing that can happen, and that's what this address is, is the water will trigger the siphon. It goes all the way to the bottom, but the water's running a little bit too fast for the other side. And it never quite gets enough air sucked in, and it just stays there at the bottom, and then your plants all die because they don't get enough water or nutrient. You can see both of these are bad. The thing is, fixing the top is easy. You just turn the pressure up and let enough water in there, and if you let enough water in there, sooner or later, it'll trigger. The, the key is being able to dial it back and find that balance point. And I spend a lot of time, because of having to clean out my systems, because they get clogged up, where I have to open them up and rebalance them. I probably, once or twice a week, rebalance all of my bell siphons um, in at least one of my systems. It tends to get a lot more gunk in it. So what he came up with is you take a cap, a little cap, which is basically, the, the, like if you want to cap a pipe, you have a little slip fitting that slips on the end of, let's say, a one-inch or a you know, three-quarter-inch piece of pipe that just basically puts a cap on it and plugs it. You take one of those and you set it upside down and you put your breather tube in it. And when the water level starts dropping, when the level gets below the cap, the breather tube starts sucking the water out of the cap. And when it sucks the cap dry, the cap will fall back down, and then the water can't get back in the cap because the water level has gone below the cap level, and then there's no way for the water to get back to the breather tube, and it breaks cleanly every time. I think this is cool. And I think it can be played with and made a little bit better. Now, most of my bell siphons, I don't have breather tubes on. I simply have holes in the bottom of the bell, and they tend to work quite reliably. But all, 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 what it'll be is there'll be one problem child that I just can't get to work. It'll just, I'll constantly go out there and find it stuck at the bottom. And I'll have to rebalance it. And what I'm going to do is the next time I have that problem child rear its head, because I've got everybody beaten into submission right now, I'll, I'll do one of these for that particular one and see how it works. But I think it's pretty cool. There's a video for it. Now, as I said, this same company also has a 3D printed bell siphon that kind of has these features integrated into it. It's really cool, and Richard had these. They're about 25 bucks a piece. The only thing I don't like about them is there's two sizes for height, and I like having a lot of control because some beds I bring the water way up and some I bring it less. And I also, a lot of times with my bell siphons, one of the really cool things you can do is let's say you're going to bunch of plants started and you want to make sure they get started really, really good. So you put a stand-up pipe in there that brings that water really, really high before it flushes. Now once those plants get established and they have some health to them and some good roots on them, you want them to drive the roots down and have bigger, healthier root systems. Well, you pull that stand-up pipe out, okay, and you, you put another one in. But now thinking about that... that uh, that printed bell siphon, I guess that wouldn't matter. Because it's the outside of the siphon, not the inside of the siphon. That's my objection is null and void. 
now that I actually fully think about it. I had a lot going on at that event, and I really didn't think about it. So those, those 3D printed ones might be something to take a look at, and I think that's something that could become more of an open source model as well. And I think 25 bucks for one of them isn't too high. Um, it is a little bit of a hard pill to swallow, though, because I can build a Bell Siphon for about five bucks. So you, you're, you're adding five times the cost uh, to every, every siphon you're constructing by, by buying one of those. But, like, you know, uh, an end slip cap for a piece of PVC costs about 75 cents, 50 cents, something like that. So uh, that little hack, that little hack is something that, you know, even if you don't standardize on it, if you're an aquaponics person, you do flood and drain or ebb and flow beds, that's a hack you should know. Because when you have that problem child that just wants to be a bitch and just doesn't want, because everybody that's done aquaponics more than, you know, made more than two beds has had that one that's just a bitch and it just doesn't want to balance. Because what this will do is let you run your supply side a little bit faster so that you can just make sure it's going to start and still get a good stop. That doesn't mean you can run it stupid flat out or something like that, but, you know, you run it hot enough to make sure it's damn well going to start every time. And then this little hack's going to make sure it's going to break every time. I think it's really cool. And I think it's one of those things that some more work can be done with it to make it even more effective without making it more complicated. Because more effective would be more reliable, uh, not just more moving parts. Less moving parts, better. And if there's any issue here, it adds another part. And in this case, a moving part. Though the movement is controlled by the system's innate characteristics. So it's not you know like uh, adding a cog into a system or something like that. But I really think if you do uh, aquaponics, you should check this one out. This next one comes from Len, and Len says, what does Len say here? Uh, Visa makes a move for a cashless society. A Wall Street Journal article, Visa has an offer for small merchants to take thousands of dollars from cash card, uh, from the card giant, upgrade their payment technology, and return the business must stop accepting cash. Read the full story. Now, when I clicked on read the full story, I got no more than Len sent me. Because it was the Wall Street Journal who wants to charge you to read their content now, which is interesting because I think most mainstream media newspaper types realize that less and less people are reading their content anyway. But it's, it might be, you know, it's a total side note, probably a good idea for Wall Street Journal to do that because their dedicated readers will pay and then maybe they won't have all the crappy advertisements that the rest of these people do. I found basically the same um, article on Fox Business, and it's full of crappy advertisements. So I don't know if WSJ does that to their paid subscribers. If you are a paid WSJ subscriber, let me know if you have you know tons of advertising, even though you're paying to read the content, with the same crappy advertisements that are on the Weather Channel and the fake news sites, etc. Anyway, uh, Visa takes war on cash to restaurants. I'm going to only read part of this. Um, but it says, Visa Inc. has a new offer for small merchants to take thousands of dollars from the card giant to upgrade their payment technology and return the business must stop accepting cash. The company is announcing the initiative this week as part of a broader effort to steer Americans away from using old-fashioned paper money. Visa says it is planning to give $10,000 apiece to up to 50 restaurants and food vendors to pay for their technology and marketing costs as long as the businesses pledge to start what, to start what Visa executive Jack Forrest calls a journey to cash list. Uh, this is from this guy. Quote, we are really viewing this as the opening salvo, end quote, said Mr. Forrestal, Visa's global head of merchant solutions of the potential total of a half-million-dollar commitment. Consumers at those stores would be able to pay for goods or services only with a debit or credit card or with cell phones. In exchange, Visa is offering to pay for upgrades to their merchant's technology at the checkout line so they can accept contract, con contactless payments such as Apple Pay. 
The $10,000 incentive also helps cover some of the merchant's marketing expenses. Visa will pick the participating merchants from the application process. It starts in August. Online-only shops are excluded. So it goes on, and I'll give you the short version that basically some people in the industry say, hey, this is great. Uh, there's a restaurant that hadn't been taking cash since the day it opened. They're very happy. They say they spend, spend a lot of, save a lot of time. Uh, by not doing it, et cetera. And then there's people that say, hey, this is bullshit. Businesses do want cash because they have to pay the credit card companies a 2% fee. Um, both sides have a point. When you have a lot of cash in your business, there's you know a whole lot of potential for theft that is less, uh, less a potential in an, in an electronic environment, in a, in a business like a restaurant. Um, there is a lot of expense and security concerns around at some point you have to get that cash into the bank because you can't accumulate too much of it or you become a target. And it's just not good for a business that's running a cash flow to have, believe it or not, too much cash on hand. Money on hand is one thing, but cash on hand is another because it is a target for many things, including the giant vulture on the back of your $1 bill with the IRS symbol around it, okay? Um, lots of reasons that businesses prefer not to have large amounts of cash on site. And when you say, well, IRS, I mean, they can go after your assets. No, what it, what it is is that when you have a large amount of cash being held by the business, it's a symbol to the IRS that something's going on. Well, is that all the cash you have? That type of thing, right? So there is that, but then there is a 2% fee. Here's what makes that 2% fee moot. No business really gives a shit about sales tax other than the administrative crap they have to do to make sure that it gets filed right. In the end, Joe's, you know, Joe Joe's cogs doesn't care what what's, you know, spacely sprock was it was it uh, Cogswell cogs doesn't care what spacely sprockets price relationship is to them in any way that includes sales tax because they both have to do it. You see what I'm saying? So it, it's passed on to the consumer. With sales tax, it's a straight pass on. They, they know it's just there. Like consumer comes in, the price for your meal is $19.99. Sales tax on it is 6%, 8%, 3%, 4%, 0%, whatever the state says. But the restaurant next door is going to price their items also irrespective of sales tax because it's equal for everybody. If every single merchant will pay in 2%, then everybody would just raise their price 2%. Because that's how markets work. Where it becomes an advantage is when one business cannot pay the 2% and the other business has to. Which is true free market, right? That's the Agora. Because both have chosen what they're doing. Then the business that's, that, that's at 2% of an advantage has two choices. One choice is they can pass the savings on to their consumer and charge less and thereby have a competitive advantage over their, competi their competitors. Or they can keep that 2% and reinvest it in their business to grow it, which is actually what most entrepreneurs would do rather than pass it on to the consumer, assuming that it was all things were being equal and they had figured out how to get an advantage over their competitors. Because my 2% is much more powerful to me, reinvested in my business. Because I should be getting a fairly large return on that and my consumer is going to make a decision in most instances regardless of 
People make 2% decisions on the stupidest things, like gasoline. You know, this, this side is $2.21 a gallon, and that side of the street is $2.22 a gallon, so I'm going to go here. I'm going to go whichever one is easier to get in and out of, because I know in the end, if I get 20 gallons of gas, it's 40 cents. And I can have way more than 40 cents worth of aggravation to get in and out of the wrong gas station. So I'm going to go to the one that, you know, makes the most sense for me logistically. But people make that decision. But people do not say, you know what? Joe's restaurant charges $4.95 for a hamburger. And Bob's restaurant charges $4.99 for a hamburger. I'm going to go to the $4.95 one. They say, which hamburger tastes better? So the business owner that's savvy enough to cut their cost by 2% is generally savvy enough to produce a better product while they're doing it. What does this all lead up to, right? Visa's declaring war on cash. It'll be a cashless society guy, blah, blah, blah. This is the opportunity for cryptocurrencies like Dash. A system whereby the merchant can receive the payment just as quickly as a credit card with just as much assurance as a credit card at a very tiny fee. That is a real advantage. And in this scenario, it seems to me like Visa's ignoring cryptocurrency as a competitor. Now, is it the case that these programs can morph into, if we do this, you can only take credit cards or you can only take Visa credit cards or whatever? Sure, but the more you restrict what you put conditions on uh, uh, something like this for, the more you make it that people won't accept it. And I'll tell you what, they're only offered a half a million dollars. That tells you something else. They don't know if people are going to be on board with this yet. Because Visa saying, we are going to invest half a million dollars in our competition against cash, would be like Jack Spirico with a survival podcast saying, I'm going to invest $500 against one of my podcasting competitors. You wouldn't take me seriously. $500, Jack? Really? Come on, man. What are you going to buy with $500? This is a multi-trillion dollar market, a half a million. This is, a, this is you know, a couple drops of piss in the pot. That's all this really is. But it does show their attitude and what they want. They're, and if you read the whole article, there's a lot more statements than that. They're flat out saying, man, we're going after cash. But they're also hedging their bet by my... Because this will be something people read, they'll talk about and see if it works. But if it doesn't work out, if they don't fill out all their $500,000 worth of grants, if you want, like tomorrow you won't even remember this if you're an average sheeple. You guys, you might remember it because it means other things to you. But you won't... But the person that just like looks at this and might have a negative view of Visa for failing, they're not going to remember this. They'll have something else the TV tells them to be angry about tomorrow. They'll be angry about that. They'll, they'll have no room to remember this. Most of them won't even pay attention to it in the first place. So this is their ability to get out there and, and, and rattle, rattle a saver and see if it's going to work. But I do think that as we move more and more toward a cashless society, many people have pointed out that cryptocurrency could be something that pushes us there faster. I think it's inevitable that we're going to somehow end up there, though, because that's what every government in the world wants. But to me, that's a long-term case for a value proposition for cryptocurrency. It's also cashless. It's just as reliable. It can do things that the banks can't. It can be completely anonymous. You have different choices in what services and features you want in a currency. It's a proven technology at this point. And it's another reason that even though I have 
really you know mitigated my Bitcoin position coming up to this this fork in August. Long term, I'm bullish on cryptocurrency as a whole. We have to see who the winners and losers in that that race and that game are going to be now. So my thoughts on that. With that, I think we've got everything wrapped up for today. And uh, wanted to uh, remind you guys that one of the ways you can help support this show is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. When you go to tspaz.com, uh, from there, and you shop online, you can help the Survival Podcast no matter what you buy. And the first link you'll see there is a link to get on over to Amazon, see their deals of the day. And once you've done that, any online shopping you do there helps the Survival Podcast. Um, next up, the, the, though, is, is every day I put up an item for review. And the item I have for review for you today is a pretty cool one. It is a backup portable battery charger for your cell phones, your tablets, and other devices. Devices? Devices. It's made by Anker. A-N-K-E-R. And I've had a lot of their products up for review because I like the company so much. A while ago, I bought a product from them. I guess it was over a year, maybe a year and a half ago now. It wasn't this. It was another similar product to this. And it arrived DOA in the box. It just didn't work at all. Period. Dead. And I was pissed because I'd bought a lot of stuff from Anchor before and it always worked so good. And then I remember what I've said about all electronics. Sooner or later, you're going to have one or two bad apples that get through quality control or something like that, or something happens to them and transmit. It always matters what the company can do. So I contacted Anchor Support. They immediately just shipped me another one through Amazon and said, that thing's a battery. It's too much trouble to take. Just throw it away. Don't, don't worry about returning. Just throw it away. And I was sold on their support. And the product they sent me worked, and it's still working today. And so is this this product. I've had this product for quite a while. It is the Astro E7 26,800 milliamp hour portable charger. What is 26,000 milliamp hours? 26,800 milliamp hours mean to you? It means that it will charge an iPhone 6S 10 times, a Samsung S6 7 charges. It would uh, uh, charge something like an iPad Air 2.5 times, an iPod Pad Mini um, 3 times. And it, it's just a horse. I mean, it's basically like carrying a really high-end laptop battery around in your pocket that has some intelligence built into it. And then this is the other thing about this product that I really like. This is an intelligent charger. And because of that, it has a lot more inherent safety to not screwing your devices up or screwing itself up or like catching on fire than most of its competitors it also will charge your devices most of the time. It'll charge a device faster than a competitor. Not all devices, but most devices will actually charge faster with this. And it itself will charge faster from the same power source as its competitors because it has intelligence built in to charge itself quickly. Um, if you drain one of these to the ground till there's none left, it'll fully charge in six and a half hours. That might sound like a long time, but I want you to think about this. If you charge 10 cell phones to full charge in a row, like you had, and they were all at zero, and they all had to go to 100, and you plugged in one, and you waited it for it to get 100, and only when it hit 100% full charge could you unplug it and plug in the next one, how long do you think that would take? You think it would take more than six and a half hours? This thing is absolutely one of the best on the market. But I wanted to point something out. I've recommended in the past the Anchor Power Core 20,100. As you might imagine, that's 20,100 milliamp hours instead of 28,000 
uh, or, or what have you, 28,600, 26,800. So it has about 20% less uh, reserve. And it's actually a less expensive product. The, the, this, this real horse of a backup power system is uh, about 60 bucks, okay, 59.99. The, uh, the the Anchor Power Core 20100 uh, 20, is thirty four ninety nine. If you do the math on that, two of them would give you forty thousand plus milliamp hours, which is about sixty six percent more power than one of these twenty eight thousand ones. And you're only spending eight percent more money. Two is one, one is none. So that's another option that you could have as well. Get two of, two of the smaller ones, and be, it'll cost you $10 more. So it'll cost you 8% more for 33% more. So on the, on the numbers alone, you would think to do that. What did I do? I actually bought one of these and one of the smaller ones. And my reasoning was I want one device that I can rely on in my pack and one in my wife's. And I'm the one that takes remote trips, long trips, and stuff like that. She only does that if she's with me. So I'll err to the side of caution on mine, and if we're together, we have both of them, and we have even more than two of the smaller ones. So I think it's all situationally dependent. Both of these, in fact, the entire Anchor Power Core line of backup power for your devices, I think, is, is just outstanding. As far as I'm concerned, I have yet to see anybody that I would recommend above them, and that's why I've gone to that exclusively in this world I recommend Anchor. If someone comes along who I think is doing a better job, I'll recommend them. But for now, Anchor is the way forward. And guys, this is something I think everybody should have. In a, in a true disaster where you're stranded somewhere, stuck somewhere without power, etc., it is that cell phone that is your communications device, it's your information device, it is everything. And in all but the most critically damaging of infrastructure situations, you still usually have some sort of, of cellular access. I've seen places where it's out too, but generally speaking, if you can move some level of distance, you can get on a node somewhere and get back in communication and in touch. I mean, if you're a place bad enough where even the, uh, the cellular's down, you probably won't move anyway. I really recommend that you have one of these for every, at least every adult member of your family and for your kids. And not necessarily everybody needs a 26,800 milliamp hour one, but something. Something will put two or three charges, and I don't care if you don't do Anchor. Okay, just and I don't care if you don't get it from freaking Amazon. I recommend these because I know they're reliable, and if you're relying on some, it should be reliable. Um, but having the ability to dump power back into those phones is, is one of the most critical things you can make sure that you have available. And remember, every time you shop online at tspaz.com, you do support the Survival Podcast and the work that we do. Last but not least, let's talk about our song of the day today. Um, this song is by a band called Rise Against, and it's called Hero of War. Some of you aren't going to like this song, but the reason you're not going to like it is it's very true. Here's some information about it from Song Facts. Guitarist Zach Blair told UltimateGuitar.com about this multi-layered acoustic guitar song. That was a song Tim McNeith, frontman, had in the studio, and it was one of those things that was like his baby. It was the, his whole thing. It's a brilliant song. And it might raise a few eyebrows, but I stand behind it 100%. It will, be, it will be when we do it live, when we do a lot of radio, and when we're promoting the record. Tim and I do a lot of acoustic songs. It's first, it was going to be a real bare bones, just one acoustic guitar line. 
but they started adding more things to it. Such is the case. This band gets really layered sometimes, and it's always best to layer a lot and take away afterwards. Yeah, that one got real layered. It was always just Tim sitting there by himself, just going for it. The song, which was inspired by the 2006 documentary, The Ground Truth, After the Killing Ends, focuses on soldiers' post-traumatic stress disorder after returning home from war. McCreth told Billboard magazine while the band recorded a video for this song, despite it not being released as an official single, he explained, I think it is such an important song in our band's career, in a world that really tends to only listen to the singles and only the skims or albums, this one has seen enough of the light of day. Uh, hasn't seen enough of the light of day, but I just thought it was a story that needs to be told, so we're hoping that by doing a video it will bring more, some more attention, even if it's not an official single. I'd like to say I think the days of official singles are over. I mean, all that really drives is whether or not you get radio playtime, and I'm thinking the reason this one wasn't released as a single, it doesn't fit the uh, blind patriotic narrative that would get you on the radio. So I, I think that we're entering an age where with you know, Apple Radio and Pandora and all these digital music services that are basically all you can eat unlimited for ten bucks a month or less, that um, the single is largely dead. But see, there's the, the the remnant of it is radio and radio play. And I, it doesn't say that there, but I bet you, I bet you, I'm right. I bet you the reason this song never was released as a single is it didn't fit the formula for singles that record companies lay out as to, can we get it on the air? But I think it is an important song. And some of you will hear this and think it's anti-soldier. Oh, man. If you think this song is against the soldier, you don't understand it, so listen to it a few times. And go have a look at the video. This, is, this song is about what is done to men who really believe in what they're doing by men who don't care what happens to them. That's what this is all about. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. He said, son, have you seen the world? Well, what would you say if I said that you could just carry this gun? You'll even get paid. I said that sounds pretty good Black leather boots Spit shine so bright They cut off my hair But it looks alright We marched down, we sang We all became friends As we learned how to fight A hero of war Yeah, that's what I'll be And when I come home They'll be damn proud of me I'll carry this flag To the grave if I must Cause it's a flag that I love And a flag that I trust I kicked in the door I yelled my commands The children, they cried But I got my man We took him away A bag over his face From his family and his friends 
They took off his clothes They pissed in his hands I told them to stop But then I joined in We beat him with guns And batons not just once But again and again A hero of war Yeah, that's what I'll be And when I come home They'll be damn proud of me I'll carry this flag To the grave if I must Cause it's a flag that I love And a flag that I trust Walked through bullets and haze I asked her to stop I begged her to stay But she pressed on So I lifted my gun And I fired away And the shells Jumped through the smoke And into the sand That the blood now had soaked She collapsed With a flag in her hand A flag white as snow A hero war Is that what they see? Just medals and scars So damn proud And I brought home that flag Now it gathers dust But it's a flag that I love It's the only flag I trust He said, son, have you seen the world? Well, what would you say If I said that you 